recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, November 3rd, 2012. Tonight I'm going to embark on something I've been wanting to do for quite some time. I'm going to start addressing the Paul Bashers. Tonight, I, with the help of Sword Brethren, shall begin to to present and discuss a series which I wrote for Clifton M. Heiser's Watchman's Teaching Letters in mid-2005 and early 2006. The material is just as pertinent today. It is posted on Clifton's website in his Watchman Teaching Letters in its original form, and the core material is also posted on Christogenia under the title William Fink versus the Paul Bashers, and the essay Misconceptions Concerning Paul and the Church. Altogether, the material originally took 20 of Clifton's rather lengthy teaching letters from his 89th through his 108th month. And in manuscript form, it extends 180, it exceeds 180 pages. The misconceptions paper was presented here in a program in September of 2011 and has well over 3,000 downloads. Incredible as it may seem, it seems incredible to me, there are many in identity Christianity who have taken to criticizing and dismissing entirely the Christian missiles, mission, the Christian mission, I'm sorry, and the epistles of Paul of Tarsus. There are many statements which repeat some of the anti-Paul arguments that shall be presented here, which are posted on various so-called Christian identity websites to this very day. The Paul bashers, as I like to term them, at least those among them who are true Christians, know not what they do, for they are actually followers of the Jews, and that will be proven here and this series will help to expose them. I would challenge any of them to read my papers and to listen to the aforementioned misconceptions concerning Paul and the Church podcast, as well as, as, well as the presentation which I gave earlier this year at the Church of Pastors Don Elmore and Mark Downey in June at the Fellowship of God's Covenant People in Kentucky, which is entitled, Paul, the First Christian Identity Preacher. And then come talk to me about Paul of Tarsus. Setting Paul's ministry and his epistles in their proper biblical and historical context and translating them properly, and there are major problems with the King James and other translations of Paul, there's no doubt, All of the arguments of the Paul Bashers easily disintegrate. Not one of them stands on its own merit. I have personal experience with Paul Bashers, and it saddens me. I had a dear friend, one of my earliest associates in Christian identity when I was first learning and studying the scriptures in this light. His name was Ralph Daigle. And I know that he still gets my infrequent Christogenia mailings. He probably listens to somebody's podcasts. 
Back in 1999 and 2000, Ralph and I spent perhaps around 18 months together with the United States government as our gracious host. And we were rather close. Not that I care for certificates or the recognition of man, I really don't. But it was primarily on account of Ralph that the Church of Christ in Israel presented me with an ordination certificate in December of 2000. For the past few years, that record has been kept in a post on the Christogenia Forum, which only registered members can see. And the post is entitled, Ordained by the First Church of Paul Bashers, which I was. Jim Wickstrom was also a good friend of Ralph's and a fellow pastor in that church, and they held their meetings, feasts, and Bible studies in common. Another Paul Basher and fellow pastor in that church was Gary Blackwell. It was probably one of the larger Christian identity assemblies. I never had the, the privilege of meeting Gary Blackwell. To Jim Wickstrom's credit, he did not follow Gary Blackwell and Ralph Daigle into Paul bashing. Although Daigle, Blackwell, and many of the other church members did. So in a very tongue-in-cheek comment on that forum post ordained by the first church of Paul bashers, I pronounced them all to be ex excommunicated. And, and of course I was being quite sarcastic, but that's what they deserve. The Paul bashers maintain a few cognitively dissonant ideas which clearly demonstrate their hypocrisy. For instance, they often point out the many mistranslations found in the King James Version and most other editions of the Bible. However, those same people will judge Paul of Tarsus based on the words of his epistles as they are presented in those same translations, not considering how badly Paul's letters may have been translated. Being a translator of the New Testament myself, I can honestly say that Paul's letters are the most poorly understood portions of Scripture. They're the most mistranslated books, not in the Bible, but anywhere. And I have a three-part series of papers with podcasts entitled Errors Inspired by Who, which offers many of the proofs required to establish that assertion. Furthermore, the Paul Bashers like to maintain that Paul of Tarsus called himself a Jew by his own mouth, referring in large part to the passage found in Acts 22, verse 3. Hypocritically, they will correct the term Jew to Judean, as it should be, in other scriptures, such as where it is applied to Christ in Matthew chapter 2 or in John chapter 4. Yet, they refuse to consider what Paul meant by the term when he used it and to correct it in those places. In effect, they assert that Jew is really Judean everywhere, except in Paul's statements, which is blatantly hypocritical. I've seen Paul Bashers do that with my own eyes and ears. The series of presentations will reveal the poor understanding and blatant hypocrisies of the Paul Bashers. I hope that before it's over, 
anyone who listens to or who knows Ralph Daigle, Gary Blackwell, Jerry Kirk, there's a clown from Florida. I ran him out of my chat server two years ago. The half-breed Clay Douglas and the total fool John Knight. Yeah, that's a whole long list of Paul Bashers. There's more Russell Walker. There's another clown. And any of the other clowns out there pretending to be identity Christians yet bashing Paul of Tarsus, who was actually the world's first identity Christian minister, anyone who knows any of those Paul bashers, I hope after they listen to this series, calls on those fools and challenges them to set the record straight. And before the end of this, uh, of this series of podcasts, perhaps not tonight, but before the end of this series of podcasts, any Paul basher who wants to contact me and appear on one of these installments is welcome to do so. And if he's serious, I will consider it. If he's a troll, he probably doesn't stand a chance, right? Well, you sound very angry, Bill. Are you sure you're not suffering from seasonal affective disorder? I mean, maybe you could benefit from psychoanalysis. <laughs> In the autumn of 2003, Ralph Daigle, who was a dear friend of mine, and I haven't spoken to him in quite a few years now. It's probably been about four, I would, if I have to guess off the top of my head, probably about three years. Ralph Daigle sent me a copy of the December 1985, Volume 2, Number 12, Kingdom Courier, by somebody named H. Graber. He used the title Doctor in reference to himself. The document is a reflection of what I wrote in 2005 was most of the trash being printed nowadays, even in Israel identity circles, to discredit Paul of Tarsus. My friend was unfortunately deceived by people such as H. Graber, Scott Nelson, Joseph Jeffers, and others into rejecting the excellent and legitimate writings of Paul. And yes, they are excellent and legitimate. I could walk through every single verse and correlate it to Old Testament prophecies and the message of the gospel. And it'll fit perfectly with history and with the prophetic word of Scripture and the word of God. Paul bashers fall victim to this treachery on the part of certain people for none other than a want of understanding. In November of 2003, I wrote a lengthy response to Graber's document. I don't know his first name. His first initial was H. It, it could be Herman. It could be Heine. I, I like to think it's Heine, probably. I, I really don't know. That may not be accurate, but it fits. I wrote a lengthy response to Graber's document and both are reproduced in Clifton's teaching letters in their entirety and in William Fink versus the Paul Bashers on Christogenia in their entirety. Now, my response in, in the papers published on the websites are, are different somewhat from the original form of the letter, which was a personal letter, and it's been edited somewhat for general consumption, but it's true to the original letter. 
And in my letter dated the 19th of November, 2003, I stated, Dear Ralph, greetings. Today I am writing you to respond to some of the statements in the December 1985 Kingdom Courier, which you sent me, the article being entitled, The Gospel of Jesus Christ versus the Doctrine of the Apostle Paul. And that's what we'll be addressing here. And I must say, if the so-called Dr. H. Graber truly wanted to seek the truth and ensure his eternal destiny, as he so boldly states, I'm sure he has found a destiny other than he hoped to attain, for his work is weighed to the balance and found wanting. This letter will demonstrate that Mr. Graber is a liar and a fraud. I am not going to address every aspect of Graber's eight-page document, though I will discuss many of his statements and certainly more of it than would be sufficient to support my claims concerning his character and his scholarship so that you may more easily follow my answers to Graver's statements, I will include a marked copy of his document with my letter, and the marks will correspond to those which precede my several responses. That's why the document is broken up into sections on Christogenia and on Clifton's website as it's published. This is important. Graver's work is, is important in addressing out of all of the examples of Paul bashing, because it was popular. Because his book, which was entitled, How Holy Is Your Bible?, contained all of this Paul bashing, that the, these accusations and claims, this literature, whatever you want me to call it, that this Paul bashing material was contained in that book, How Holy Is Your Bible?, and that book was quite popular in certain identity Christian circles. It's also very often quoted in Christian identity websites and essays and sermons and papers. And that's pretty damn sad because this man well, is a very poor scholar. And, and so beyond that, he's also quoted extensively in the writings of the enemy when they discuss the Christian identity movement. There's a book called Radical Religion in America by Jeffrey Kaplan, and it, it looks like they extensively quote an H. Graber who, who publishes the Kingdom Courier. But I, I've been unable to track down what that H stands for, if that's his middle name and what, what his um, first name is. All I can find out is that he runs something called the Church of Christ in Israel, and he calls himself a doctor, but I can't confirm what his Ph.D. is in. Well, well the Church of Christ in Israel was the church that I was ordained into in 2000. Mm-hmm. And um, that, so he, he seems to still be using that name, but is he actually a doctor? Does the, he have a PhD in theology, philosophy, or is it just some I, title he gave? The, the founder of that church was actually Francis Smith, and, and he lived in um, Winslow, Maine. I don't know. He was very sick a few years ago. I don't even know if he's still alive. But Francis Smith was, was a big um, Frank Smith was, was a big Paul basher. He became a big Paul basher. He also admitted getting most of his material from a man named W. G. Finlay. This will all come out in this presentation from a man named W. G. Finlay, who was a pastor, a, a, a sort of identity pastor in South Africa, and Finlay actually admits getting most of his material concerning Paul of Tarsus, and we uncovered this in, in this in, in this series of presentations from a Jew 
named Rabbi Jacqueline Prince of Newark, New Jersey. Now, when Clayton Douglas, and Clayton Douglas will be the, the final two-thirds of this series of, of um, against the Paul Bashers, will be material, what we will confront material which was published by Clayton Douglas in his Free American Magazine, which was also at one time um, popular in certain Christian identity circles. And Clayton Douglas admits getting his material from Bishop, or, or a lot of his material against Paul, from Bishop John Spong of Newark, New Jersey. John Spong was the Episcopalian Bishop of Newark, New Jersey. At the same time, Jacqueline Prince was the chief rabbi at the biggest synagogue in Newark, New Jersey. Okay? Now, John Spong was the first bishop to ordain fags into the, in, into the um, Episcopalian church. Okay? To ordain sexual deviance into the Episcopalian church. He had... A, a wife and two daughters, and his wife got sick, and he suddenly had a homosexual epiphany and, and started ordaining faggots into the Episcopalian church. Now, that, that is bizarre, but John Spong is the source of much of the material that the Paul bashers like to use in criticism of Paul. Well, John Spong had a homosexual epiphany. If you take a good look at Scripture, the only places in the New Testament where such sexual deviancy is outright explicitly condemned is in the epistles of Paul of Tarsus. So someone who has a homosexual epiphany is not going to like Paul of Tarsus. You have to get rid of Paul. New Jersey is not going to like Paul of Tarsus. W.G. Finley, I don't know what the hell he was thinking. But he quotes this rabbi from New Jersey quite freely. And now, if you're saying he's basically a, a quasi-identist, why would he quote a rabbi? Well, well exactly. So, so well, once we'll, we'll, we'll get to the bottom of this from, from their own writing, who, who their sources are and what their sources are. Now, now I have to say that Clifton, in, in, in his Watchman's teaching letter, number 88, the one which immediately preceded, and, and I'm not going to get into it in, in this presentation, but the one which immediately preceded this series of, of, um, of Watchman's teaching letters which originally addressed the Paul Bashers, Clifton wrote a, a short history of the origin of Paul bashing. And, and he went all the way back to, to certain sects of early first and second century Christians, or, or like you said, quasi-Christians, right? Well, well the, um, the, the Ebionites and, and the Corinthians, or Serentians, C-E-R-I-N-T-H-I-A-N-S. There, there are several sects. It's, it's on Clifton's Emma Hodges website, Watchman's Teaching Number 88, which shows that the origin of Paul Bashers lay with um, a lot of those who were Judaizers in early Christianity, and, and the Judaizers hated Paul of Tarsus, the people who wanted to keep us bound to circumcision and, and Jewish rituals and, and all of those things, so that, well, well, they hated Paul of Tarsus. And, and that's only some of the problems 
that there are a lot more than that. The the um the the nature of the divinity of Christ and and several other problems that those people had with Paul's teachings and and, and that's the beginning of Paul bashing and and it can be followed that the Jews have been trying to discredit Paul of Tarsus for two thousand years. It, it's a shame that such a thing has gotten into Christian identity because Paul was demonstrably the first Christian identity minister. It's that identity Christianity is all throughout all of Paul's epistles. If they would only open their eyes and see it, it's difficult to do sometimes because of the extremely poor nature of the translation. But Paul consistently identified those nations sprung from the loins of Abraham in his epistles he consistently professed that they were the recipients of the covenants in his epistles. That's a Christian identity pastor right there. And he consistently pointed out the nature of the enemies of God in his epistles. We can't blame Paul of Tarsus for the very poor translations which came along 1,600 years later. That's not Paul's fault. Well, I'd also say proof positive that he was working for the interests of our people, you know, his people. He was murdered by the Jews or at the behest of the Jews, wasn't he? Well, well, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And and that's, um, well, well, right from Scripture, that that's fairly demonstrable. I mean, nobody's ever questioned the historicity of the arrest and, and execution of Paul of Tarsus. If I'm not mistaken, several dozen Jews even took a vow not to eat, drink, or rest until they killed them. And I'm sure they violated the vow in regards to eating, drinking, and resting. But, of course, in the end, they killed them. Well, well, right. It, it's recorded in the Book of Acts. Okay, do you want to start with the Graber position in Section A? H. Graber states, Indeed, I am aware of the controversy this message will precipitate. But if there is one iota of truth in this exposition, then I propose that the professed Christian must establish justification for the discrepancies between the gospel of Jesus Christ and the doctrine of the Apostle Paul. It is not my purpose to generate controversy, but rather to seek the truth and ensure my eternal destiny. If we manufacture any justification for the doctrine of the Apostle Paul, then we must concede that Jesus Christ erred in the presentation of his gospel while he walked the earth. Or we must acknowledge that Jesus Christ changed his divine plan after his resurrection and ascension. And this premise must then acknowledge that Paul was spiritually inspired of God to document his divergent doctrine. And as an aside, this man who claims to be a Ph.D., he's made about three or four spelling errors that are fairly simple, which would suggest that he, he's a poor speller and he doesn't proofread his work before he publishes it, which raises the question of how serious of an academic can he be. I just thought that was something that was of note and that the listeners should understand that since I'm reading the document and I can see all the mistakes and you've pointed out most of them in brackets, but they have no access. You know, they can't see the document as I'm reading it. Unless, is this available online for them to follow along? Well, well, I had an original copy of this. I'm sure that I still have it. It's just that with, with, with my, my relocation and, and my, my property is strewn across two states and, and, and I just don't have it with me. But but the, the, right. the errors are, you know, the mistakes, the grammar errors, the spelling errors, they are part of the original document. 
So that does raise some questions about this man's scholarship, or doesn't it? How academic he is? Well, well, he's not very academic at all. It's really pretty incredible. He he, he was a published author, and I don't know under what circumstances his books were published. That this is way before my time. A lot of the original material is is difficult to obtain. And I have to wonder, what sort of theology does he operate under that he says that he has to seek the truth to ensure his eternal destiny? So he's suggesting that if, he, if he's against Paul and doesn't act on it, he would somehow lose his salvation. So he has to write this article to assure his salvation? Well, well fine, article. not only that, but, but, but he, he also is... Um, he, he never points out many specific instances, even here he does not point out specific instances where um, specific verses of Paul's are, are in conflict with, with the gospel and the words of Christ. Um, later on in the presentation, he, he does present some material, but, but it's not, um, it, it's, he, he should be more specific right from the beginning. And he's not, he, he gives it in, 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 uh, uh, in a brief time, he'll give us um, a. Com- he'll ask us to compare two chapters without pointing at anything specific, and and we'll get to it. I shall be eternally grateful to Dr. W. G. Finley of South Africa for his expose of this matter, which inspired me to verify his presentation in both scriptures and secular history. It will be impossible for me to present all the details of this picture of betrayal in this short treatise but I shall endeavor to present the fundamental basis for this message to serve as a rational guide for any sincere Christian to expand upon by their own research and study. And definitely in turn, a lot of his work is available at IsraelElect.com, and he admits using Jacqueline Prince, the Jewish rabbi from Newark, New Jersey, for a lot of his own um, ideas and material contrary to Paul of Tarsus. I would say that even a, a basic Christian who is at least well-intentioned should be able to do better research than this man since his work is, you know, rife and replete with just spelling errors again and again and again, and I think he has a, a muddled concept of salvation and how one is saved. Well, well, he definitely has a muddled concept of salvation. There's no doubt. He has a muddled concept of Christianity, and, and we will see that um, very shortly. In reply to section A, to begin, I will quote, and these are your words, correct? This is your well, writing? Right, I'll, I'll, I'll read this. It, it's, uh, oh, okay. I began addressing Graeber by skipping ahead to the very end of his document, on page 8, paragraph 9, and we will get to that section in the course of this presentation. However, I skipped ahead, and, and because of his muddled view of salvation, and as you pointed out, Brian, his his idea that if he reads Paul, he's not going to be saved, and and, and that that's a huge problem, right? It, it's a huge problem because we, being children of Israel, if indeed we are children of Israel, are guaranteed salvation in in the Scripture. Anybody who reads the Scripture should come to that understanding that that mercy, the the mercy of God on the children of Israel, it is a blanket mercy. And Paul explains it, but so do the prophets. So it's not conditional upon works or certain actions or abstaining from actions. And you can't lose it. You can't do anything to save yourself, and, 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 and you can't do anything to break those promises. The, the promises of God 
cannot be retracted. We are all, and, and, and let me quote Graeber here, and, and this is what I skip ahead to on page 8 of his document, of, of his kingdom career. We are all individually the captains of our own destiny. That's H. Graeber's statement. It's amazing that so many Christian identists are sucked in by this material. This statement alone exposes Graeber as a humanist. As you said, it is heretical and not a Christian. It also exposes him as a hypocrite. Because on that same page, on page 8 of his document, Graeber makes this claim. I shall glean my spiritual sustenance from Matthew, John, Peter, and James. He claims to glean his spiritual sustenance from Peter and from James, yet he claims that we are all individually the captains of our own destiny. Let's measure that claim against those scriptures, right? Who does Peter say is the shepherd and bishop of our souls but Yahshua Christ? That's 1 Peter 2.25. We are not the captains of our own destiny. If we're Christians, we realize that we can't be the captains of our own destiny. We are all purchased by the blood of Christ. We are all purchased and owned by Yahweh, our God. Our lives are not our own. Peter teaches us that in 1 Peter 2.25 by telling us that Yahshua Christ is the shepherd and bishop of our souls. Paul teaches it in Ephesians 1.14, where he talks about the redemption of the possession. That is what the children of Israel are. They are Yahweh's possession. At 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, Paul says, Indeed, you have been purchased for a price. That's what happened on the cross. We were purchased back from our sin. The Word of God says that the children of Israel sold themselves into sin, sold themselves to the other races and nations of people by following their gods. And Bill, also um, John fifteen sixteen, ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you. Well, well, so if we're captains of our own destiny, we would be choosing him. He wouldn't be choosing us. Well, well Paul says at 1 Corinthians seven twenty three, you have been purchased for a Christ. He says at 1 Corinthians six twenty, indeed, you have been purchased for a price. Well, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 says that, that sinners among the children of Israel even deny the master who has bought them. So, so Paul's theology in this instance and Peter's, and there's five scriptures involved, three of Paul's and two of Peter's, all agree. And, and it's very well, plain that they agree. And, and H. Graver claims to be the master of his own destiny. He's not teaching Peter. He, he's teaching he, Graber. He's teaching the gospel according to Graber, so of course he has no choice but to try and discredit Peter and Paul, especially Paul, because their teachings would expose this man as a heretic. No doubt. There's much more to this. I, I want as we proceed into the meat of Graber's arguments, we'll see how they all fall apart, how they all have no merit. But right away, pretending to be a teacher, he does the work of Yahweh deceitfully, Jeremiah 48.10, and he, con he, he conceives and utters from the heart words of falsehood. Because his, right, right away, right off the rip, Graber 
is not being a Christian. He's being well, a humanist. And we're told that the fool says in his heart there is no God, and essentially this man, by saying that man can affect his own salvation and is the, the um, chief of his own destiny, he's effectively saying, when you carry it out to its natural conclusion, that there is no God. Well, well it's a denial of, of many scriptures, yes. It's a denial of, 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 the, um, of the sovereignty of God and Christ. Would you like to read mm-hmm. section B? Section B, Graber states, quote, the book, The Great Line of God by Taylor Caldwell gives one a preview of Saul of Tarsus as a Pharisee, depicting a totally perverse and reprobate Jew steeped in the traditions of Judaism. And to stop his words here as an aside, my own thoughts, this would reveal a lack of historical knowledge on his part or a lack of academic and honest and, you know, uh, academic honesty and integrity on his part, because if, if he's knowledgeable in history, he should realize that the Pharisees were a mixed multitude. They were a mixed bag, a largely hijacked and infiltrated institution that had previously been Jacobite, unless I'm mistaken, and a lot of Edomites had come in, whereas the Sadducees, as we've established, were entirely Edomite, what we would call today Jews, and Paul was clearly not an Edomite. He was an Israelite Pharisee. There, there's no question he was a Pharisee, but that doesn't mean he was racially an Edomite. Right. Pharisee is not a racial distinction. It's a political party. Go on. The Republican Party. Anyone can belong. To continue. Further, he is depicted as a short, stocky, and of strong stature with a very unpleasant countenance. Depicted by who? Well, well, we'll, we'll talk about it. I'll discuss that. Okay. This is the character that admits his zealousness in killing Christians. Here I would like to ask you to read the words of Jesus Christ in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 1 through 29, and then read Paul's Sermon on the Mount, question mark, in Romans 12, 1 through 21. Certainly the divergent doctrine of Paul is evident in this comparison. And just as an aside here, just because Paul was zealous in killing Christians, well, if I'm not mistaken, the Vikings were zealous in killing Christians when they landed in Britain or England at the time, and they sacked monasteries and raped nuns and, and butchered priests, but that doesn't mean the Vikings are somehow not white, unless I'm greatly mistaken as to the origins of the Vikings. This, I had addressed this in a 2002 letter to, to, to Ralph Daigle, that this same claim of Graeber's, and, and I wish I'd have kept it. I, I didn't keep a copy of it. And, and um, Graeber is quoting from a book by Taylor Caldwell. Taylor Caldwell first was a woman, right? Now, now that's not a big problem, but everybody hears the name Taylor Caldwell and believes Taylor Caldwell is a man, and, and the name ha- has gravitas because it's so Anglo-Saxon sounding, right? Well, Taylor Caldwell was a woman, and the book The Great Lion of God was a historical novel about Paul of Tarsus. It was not a, a, a biography. It was not a... a, a um, factual book that was based it, it was just a historical novel taylor caldwell a mainstream scottish christian woman i believe she was presbyterian she wrote a historical novel about paul of tarsus and she drew her information from many spurious sources for those interested they will find that the alleged physical description of paul which is very unseemly which Taylor Caldwell drew in her historical novel, is actually derived from the writings of the second century forger of the scripture, a a contrived work called The Acts of Paul and Thecla. 
And the Acts of Paul and Thecla was actually a contrivance introduced to pollute Christianity with certain false doctrines. Now, I didn't write this into my paper at the time because I didn't know it yet, but Tertullian, the, the, the Christian bishop of Carthage in 180 AD, had, had made a refutation and exposed the acts of Paul and Thecla as basically an early um, false document which a certain bishop who was de- who was taken out of his position and, and humiliated had, had tried to introduce into Christianity in order to introduce a form of feminism into Christianity. And um, that, that was absolutely unheard of at that time, and, and it was rejected. And, and the author of the Acts of Paul and Thecla actually tried to introduce a, a false book into the Christian canon in order to promote certain heresies and, 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 and certain um, evil attitudes. Now... All of this has, has been printed. This is relatively common knowledge. You could even find it on Wikipedia, okay, the story of the Acts in Paul and Thecla and the words of Tertullian in reference to them. It's, not, it's very common knowledge, um, unless you're, you're um, going to be sucked in by the gravitas of a name like Taylor Caldwell and, and not actually examine who the hell it, it, it is that's being mentioned. It's simply a woman who wrote historical novels. It's not a scholarly source that a, a, a doctor writing on the New Testament should use in a criticism of any New Testament figure. It, it's, it's ridiculous that, this, that, this is, that there are a lot of serious Christian identists that are actually sucked in by this garbage. Now, the spurious description of Paul was repeated in another forgery using the name of Lucian in the 4th century, so it actually had some persistence, right? Because such a a description of Paul is used by multiple forgers who, who can be proven to be enemies of truth and enemies of Christianity, I would safely um, confer that the truth concerning Paul's appearance is probably quite the opposite of what the forgers would have us believe. I I would simply dismiss the entire description of Paul found in the Acts of Paul and Thecla and and in the the spurious writings under the name of Lucian as as a lie and a deception, and and they hold no historical merit whatsoever. And, And people like Graeber that repeat such things as fact, when they're actually the works of second and third century forgers, well, well those people should be ashamed. It, it's, it's incredible. Any historian is only as good as his sources, and if Graeber and Caldwell want to promote the works of a liar, that then they themselves have become liars in doing so. Well, it seems that he's already arrived at the conclusion he wants, and he's out looking for sources to back up that conclusion, which is dishonest. Right. Now, now, now in, in this paragraph, Graeber also condemns Paul's words in Romans chapter 12 in comparison with Matthew chapter 7. And, and he makes no specific statements. Where are the specific statements where Paul's teachings are actually in conflict with the gospel of Christ? 
He offers nothing. And, and, and I'm not going to stab at shadows by trying to imagine what, what he meant, except to say that I, I don't find any fault in Paul's discourse in Romans chapter 12 in comparison with the entire Sermon on the Mount of our Redeemer, which actually begins in Matthew chapter 5, right? Not chapter 7, and, and which includes Matthew chapter 6. It, it's um, j- just to throw out two chapters and, and, and throw them up as an example and say, oh, there, there's conflicts, and, and anybody that reads it can see it. Well, we'll point out the problems, and, and well, Graver fails to do that. It's an ad hominem attack. I don't see anything, even a cursory glance over Romans 12. We're told to, if at all possible, live peaceably with all men. How does that conflict with anything from the Sermon on the Mount? This guy's a clown. Well, well, Paul defines the word men as Adamic man in Romans right. chapter 5, right? He defines his, his idea of the word man and limits it to the descendants of Adam in Romans chapter 5. Yeah, Paul's constantly accused of universalism by people who take his statements out of context. If you read well, Romans chapter 5 and understand that Paul is equating man, the word man, to the word Adam, well, then you understand wherever he uses that word man, he only means the descendants of Adam. Certainly, and even so, he says, if at all possible. And even if we were to extend the concept of man to say the Turks, the Mongols, the Tartars, the Kumans, the Arabs, we can't live in peace with them because they've overrun almost all of our ancestral lands violently, you know, in the last 2,000 years. So th- there is no possibility of peace with them. But like you said, this guy is very vague. He just says, go read Matthew 7, go read Romans 12, Paul contradicts Jesus, end of discussion. If he's going to say that, shouldn't he be citing verses and being very specific? He should be citing verses, and he should be making sure that the contexts are, are similar so, so that you're not taking any verse out of context in, in, in order to contrive your own problems and your own arguments. Right. He's not even taking a verse, period. He just cites the entire chapter and moves on with his slander. Well, we'd like to read his argument in Section C. Section C, Graber states, Now let us consider the purported divine commission of apostleship bestowed upon Saul Paul, as documented by the professed apostle Luke. Professed apostle Luke? So now Luke's a so-called apostle? Well, well, that's the... the, um, And I address that here. If, If you're a Paul basher you have to toss Luke because Luke was Paul's constant companion because Luke's gospel was basically um, Paul's gospel. And, and the, the gospel that Luke recorded, the, the gospel, when I say the gospel in this context, I mean the account of the life of Christ and, and the ideas which were recorded and, and the witnesses that were recorded in Luke's gospel, that was the gospel that Paul must have been presenting as the account of the life of Christ in all of the assemblies which he taught Christianity. It's Luke and Paul. Their their mission was basically, from the time Paul left Antioch, Luke was his constant companion. For a a great deal of time, for for probably 15 to 20 years. Uh, I mean, I don't have the chronology in my head. I could figure it out. but, but, But it was a great deal of time that Paul and Luke were together. 
this is amazing. Though. I'm just waiting to read, you know, when, when's he going to say professed Messiah Jesus? Well, well, right. Go, go on, I mean, with his arguments. Okay. As documented by the professed Apostle Luke in Acts chapter 9, there is no evidence in scriptures or secular history of this miraculous event except the claim of Paul himself as documented by his companion Luke in the book of Acts. Here, let us consider the authors of the New Testament books. We know that Jesus Christ commissioned his disciples to perform his commands, and Jesus personally selected Matthew, Peter, John, James, Philip, Bartholomew, Simon, Thaddeus, Andrew, Thomas, and Judas Iscariot, a devil, and Jesus knew it. Of these twelve, only four wrote books that we have in the New Testament, Matthew, John, Peter, and James, a total of nine books, all authored between A.D. 63 and A.D. 96, except Matthew, which is dated A.D. 37. And, and let, me just, let, let me just conjecture that James's epistle had to be written sometime before 63 A.D. because James was dead by 63 A.D. All right. These are the works of the disciples of Jesus Christ. Now let us consider the books written by professed apostles in the New Testament, all authored between A.D. 54 and A.D. 69. These books, 17 total, were all authored by Mark, Luke, and Paul, with Paul being the author of 14 of them. Here we note what seems an enigma to me. If Paul was this great man of God that he is expounded to be by all professed Christianity except a few today, why was his name mentioned only one time by Peter and all the works of the disciples who wrote during that time, and much later than Paul? Conversely, why did Paul not mention Matthew even one time in his works, considering that he was the author of the Gospel of Jesus Christ? Paul mentions John one time, Peter five times, and James four times in all of his prolific writings. However, when we consider the three professed apostles, Mark, Luke, and Paul, we find that Mark did not mention Paul even one time, but Luke, Paul's companion, mentioned Paul's name 133 times, and Paul mentioned his own name 30 times. By way of observation, it appears like Luke is the publicity agent, Hollywood style, for Paul. I believe here we have two professed apostles that seem to be working hand-in-glove to promote a new star on the horizon of Christianity. I believe that the following exposition will support this contention. I wonder, would it have been better if Paul just called himself a doctor? Would that have given him credibility? Well, well everything here is entirely dishonest. Everything here is incredibly dishonest. I, I, first, I'll only make a general statement in support of both Luke and Paul. The mark of an inspired writer of the words of God is the revelation of prophecy later fulfilled. Luke's gospel contains prophecy that the other gospels do not contain. That although the same general sketch, and, and, and I'm talking about, uh, first, I'm, I'm pointing out and using as an example that the impending fall of Jerusalem as depicted by Christ Luke's gospel contains prophecy that although the same general sketch of the forthcoming destruction of Jerusalem was also painted in, in the words of Christ in Matthew chapter 24 and Mark chapter 13, in Luke chapter 21, there are some things that are stated in a very different way than the way that Matthew and Mark had stated them. There are things recorded in Luke chapter 21, the words of Christ are recorded, that aren't in those discourse, the discourse as it's recorded in Matthew 24 and Mark 13. Okay? And we see, examining or, or walking through, through Josephus' wars, 
and the testimony of the history of the destruction of Jerusalem, as we know it from Josephus, we see that Luke's version, which states some things very more, much more specifically than those offered by Matthew and Mark, Luke's version was fulfilled exactly as Luke wrote it. It's almost like Luke's writing a history rather than a gospel. There are many other writings in Luke and in Acts, and it can be demonstrated, that only a man inspired by God could possibly write. However, men like Graeber, who, who has a false and deceitful heart, do not have the capacity to recognize such things. There are many prophetic statements made by Paul, among them Romans chapter 16, verse 20, of which a proper study would reveal that Paul also had to be inspired by God to make. Paul tells the Romans in his epistle, God will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Thirteen years later, fourteen years later, the Romans destroy Jerusalem. 1.1 million Judeans, and, and these are all non-Christian for the most part, non-Christian Judeans, and, and the people of Jerusalem were for the most part Edomites who despised Christianity and despised Rome. 1.1 million Judeans were slain. Jerusalem was destroyed. The adversary, the opposition, Satan, was crushed under the feet of the Romans 13, 14 years after Paul told them it would happen. Now, now that's only one example. It's a very striking one. But if you read Luke, Luke chapter 21 and compare it with the Roman history of the destruction of Jerusalem, it was fulfilled exactly as Luke wrote it, and neither Matthew nor Mark had recorded it in that manner. I will be expositing that on, on my, in my Luke presentation in several weeks. It, it's um, very striking. And if these men had written things ahead of time that were later fulfilled in the exact manner they were written, and nobody else wrote such things, well, that's the mark of the inspiration of God. And that's just the first step in demonstrating the veracity of the writings of Luke and Paul. Now, Graeber makes some very insidious statements and questions. For instance, he demands to know why Matthew never mentioned Paul or why Mark never mentioned Paul. It doesn't seem to matter to Graeber that the Gospels of Matthew and of Mark and their accounts before the first Pentecost mentioned in Acts chapter 2, long before Paul's involvement in Christianity. Why would Matthew or Mark mention Paul? if their books end before Paul arrives on the scene. Graeber... Maybe they should have done an addendum. Or he has to be a purposeful deceiver. His question is equivalent to asking why Matthew didn't mention the birth of Constantine or the founding of America. Well, why didn't he ask that? Graeber admits that Paul was mentioned by Peter. And then, regardless of Peter's testimony of Paul... Graeber claims to glean his spiritual sustenance from Peter. Graeber is a liar, and he's a hypocrite. Graeber states that we find that Mark did not mention Paul even one time, but Mark's gospel ended long before Paul's involvement in Christianity. I met you, Brian, in, in, um, for the first time in 2009, June 2009. 
If I was writing a book of my life and I ended it in December 2008, would you expect to be mentioned in that book? Of course. How could I be? It's ridiculous. It, it's a ridiculous argument. And, and Paul Basher's fall for this garbage. It, it's incredible. It, it's, it, it's absolutely silly. A child should notice Graver's duplicity here. Now, now Graver raises a lot of sto- smoke claiming that Luke mentions Paul's name 133 times, and he did. However, he also mentioned Saul, I think, 23 times, so that's really 156 times, right? Well, well, Graver fails to mention that not one of these times in which Luke mentions Paul's name, not one of them are in the Gospel of Luke. They're all in the book of Acts. Before we get to the book of Acts, in one short letter we have, from James, James doesn't mention Paul. But does that discredit Paul? James didn't mention any of his contemporaries. James didn't mention any of the other apostles in his letter. So what? Graber is lying. Why is he lying? He's using these, he's misrepresenting facts and, and inventing a lie out of them. In two letters, Peter wrote two short epistles. The only other apostle he mentioned was Paul. Graver's own arguments prove just the opposite of what his intent is. His arguments prove the legitimacy of Paul and prove that Graver is a liar. John mentions none of his colleagues. John doesn't mention any of the other apostles in three epistles. And of course, John wouldn't mention Paul by name in his gospel for the same reason that Mark or Luke or or Matthew wouldn't. Why does Paul have to be mentioned in the gospels? He didn't come along until several months after, after the ascension of Christ. Jude only mentions James, his brother. And, and I'm, it's surely to prevent us from confusing him with the other New Testament men bearing the name of Judas which is Jude's name. There were three men in the New Testament who bore that name. So Jude mentioned his brother so that we would know which Jude is being mentioned, and and that would make sense. We have 14 of Paul's epistles. Of these 14 epistles, four of them are very long, Hebrews, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and Romans. And the other 10 are nearly all as long or longer than any of the seven epistles written by the other apostles. For the sake of comparison, Paul's epistles consume 179 pages in the the Novum Testamentum Grecae, where the other seven epistles from the other apostles only consume 44 pages. Paul mentions his own name 30 times, based on Graeber's count. That's approximately once per six pages of text. James mentions his own, his own name only once. Peter mentions his own name twice. Jude mentions his own name once. So that's about once every ten pages of text. And that's only because John, who was very humble, never even mentioned his own name. The book of Acts is basically an account of the deeds of Peter and Paul which was written by Luke. Now, Peter's name occurs in the book of Acts 58 times. 
And Paul's, as Graver states, 133 times. But 23 times Saul was mentioned. Who is Paul? So let's say 156 times. That's not excessive, because Luke spent a hell of a lot more time with Paul than he did with Peter. Luke was with Paul throughout the entire book of Acts, from Acts chapter 16 onwards. Peter did not appear in any of those chapters from Acts chapter 16 onwards. Peter's involvement in the book of Acts ends at Acts chapter 15. So we see that the mentions, the frequency of mention of Paul's name and of Peter's name are very fairly distributed when we consider how much time Luke spent with Paul and the fact that he didn't spend any time with Peter and and that Peter is only mentioned up until um, Acts chapter 15, the first half of the book. So that's not excessive. It's not excessive at all. The Gospel of Matthew is basically an account of the deeds of Christ, and Christ, the, the name Jesus, or Yahshua, appears in the Gospel of Matthew 152 times. It appears in the Gospel of John 240 times. Now, Matthew contains 87 pages of Greek in the Novum Testamentum Greke, and John contains 74, but Acts contains 89 pages. It's longer than either of those two books. So Paul's name is not mentioned excessively. Paul only mentioned his own name 30 times in his epistles. He mentioned the name of Jesus Christ 230 times. Graber is a liar. He mentioned the name of Christ eight times more often than he mentioned his own name, even though the epistles, in his epistles, he was often the subject. So so this whole thing about how many times Paul's name was mentioned, Paul's name wasn't mentioned in this book or that book, the, 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 the exactly opposite result can be made in those mentions of Paul's name from Graeber's, from the intention of Graeber's argument. Graeber intends his argument to discredit Paul and actually the opposite can be effective. And it's a totally dishonest argument. Would you like to read Graeber's argument at section D? Graeber states, who is the professed apostle Paul? In scriptures, Paul tells us that he is an Israelite. Then he tells us that he is a Pharisee. Luke tells us that Paul is a Jew. Well, interesting, if this man's a scholar, shouldn't he know that the word Jew didn't exist in the English language as we understand it until the 1500s, so Luke would be saying that Paul is a Judean, wouldn't he? Right. History tells us that after the Babylonian captivity of the house of Judah, only a small remnant returned to Jerusalem, which were mostly Jews and not Israelites. Well, this is a major problem here. This guy's obviously never read the Gospel of John since the Edomites confronting Jesus in John chapter 8 point out that they were never in captivity to any man. Jesus acknowledges that what they're saying is correct and true. Therefore, these people were never in Babylon, nor were they in Assyria. So, well, well it, might... that. It, it goes beyond that. He, he, he's, he, he's confusing Judah with Jews, is what mm-hmm. he's doing. All of the people of the tribe of Judah are Israelites. Exactly. 
the captivity in Babylon was for our people. The Edomites, they didn't come along for the ride. They weren't there. None of the modern Jews are Israelites. He's confusing Jews with Judah. So he doesn't even have his basic terms down. History tells us that after the Babylonian captivity of the house of Judah, only a small remnant returned to Jerusalem, which were mostly Jews and not Israelites. Jesus warned his people concerning the lie that even today has blinded the world. We read in Revelation 2.9 and 3.9, I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews slash Judeans and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. So one must ask the question, was Paul a Jew, Yehudali, or an Israelite? We know that in secular life, Paul was a rabid Jew, Pharisee, and lawyer, and we are told that he was steeped in the principles of Judaism. Told by who? Also, he was an avid student of the philosophers of his days at the university, such as Plato and Socrates. So that, that's a mark against, I'm sure, pretty much every prominent Roman and Greek, anybody who was anybody in the, in the world in that time would have been a student of Plato, Socrates, and Aristotle, or their, um, their students. Is that um, incorrect, or am I totally well, off base well, there? Uh, Plato and Socrates were studied everywhere, but yet, you know, Paul doesn't quote either one of them, not once. He doesn't so it's not like either one of them. It's not like he's writing, you know, a letter in Colossians, and all of a sudden he starts putting in stuff about Platonic heaven and forms. Right. And, and Plato and Socrates, actually a lot of early early Greek philosophy actually came from the Hebrew Scripture. And, and Pythagoras and, and the, the remarks made concerning Pythagoras' beliefs lend to prove that. But the... Um, Graeber engages in deception by purposefully confusing the context in which certain terms are used. Where Paul says he is an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin, he doesn't lie. He identifies himself by race. Where Paul says he is a Judean, which is where what, what Jew is everywhere in the Greek, the, the word is Judean, it is not Jew. Where Paul says he is a Judean, neither Paul... And let me say that neither Paul nor Luke nor any other biblical writer used the term Jew. It doesn't exist at that time. But where Luke calls Paul a Judean, they don't lie. They're using the term to describe Paul's national identity. You're an American, and a lot of Negroes are American. That doesn't mean that you're a Negro. You're an American, and a lot of um, Latinos, if I have to use that term, are Americans. That doesn't mean that you're a Latino. Judean, what was a, 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 a geopolitical term to the Romans, and, and Judea was a multi-ethnic state. It's not a racial distinction at the time, not at all. It's a national identity, which has no, um, at, at the time of Christ, it has no reference as to race because there are multiple races, the Edomites, other Canaanites, Greeks and Romans, and Syrians, and, and um, Israelites all living in Judea. And any one of them could consider themselves a Judean, and, and that is proven beyond doubt in the works of Josephus and in the Greek testimonies of Strabo and other Greek historians. So, so Graeber is being... Um, he's being dishonest, and it's that plain. The terms... In terms understood in the Greco-Roman world, Judea was simply a, a national distinction, as we would, but it had nothing to do with race. 
Paul was born in Tarsus. Paul was born in Tarsus, and therefore he was a Roman citizen, but he still considered himself a Judean by nation because his parents were Judeans. In a similar manner, I, I might elect to call myself an American, and that's not a racial distinction. I could call myself a Saxon or a Celto-Saxon, and that's not a national distinction. I could call myself a German, the land where my fathers came from. And that would be a racial distinction. I wouldn't be lying on any one of those occasions. I could use any one of those terms, and I would not be lying. It's the context and, and the meaning that I'm using those terms in, and, and that's what determines how I'm using them. Graeber is lying because he's trying to take advantage of the different labels. None of those labels are wrong. Paul was a Pharisee. That doesn't make him evil. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Was Nicodemus evil? Joseph of Arimathea was a Pharisee. He was on a council. He was on a Sanhedrin. He wasn't evil. Pharisee, there were many good Pharisees. There's much Christ preached to the Pharisees all the time. Why would Christ preach to the Pharisees if he didn't have the hopes of, 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 um, of them learning something through his preaching? He never preached to the Sadducees. That's a whole different story. The Sadducees, the deniers of everything spiritual and, and, and the deniers of, of, of the spirit world and, and of God's efficacy in the physical world, well, well the Sadducees were evil. And the Sadducees, it could be relatively safe to say, were probably all Edomites or Canaanites. The high priests that crucified Jesus Christ, they were not Pharisees. Acts chapter 5 proves that they were Sadducees. And the history of Josephus corroborates that. There were many good Pharisees. Today's equivalents are Republicans. That's the way I like to term it. The Republicans, there's a lot of good Republicans, and there's a lot of bad Republicans. They're called neocons, right? Democrats are, are more like the Sadducees, what, where they deny everything spiritual. The progressive Democrats, they deny the spiritual, they deny God. Graeber here uses the term Pharisee as a scare word, and, and that's a problem in Christian identity in general. And a lot of Christian identities, oh, if you're a Pharisee, you're a Jew. Well, no, there were a lot of good Pharisees that were Israelites. The word Pharisee should not be used in such a manner as a scare word. Christ would not have dined constantly throughout the gospel with Pharisees and preached to Pharisees if all Pharisees were evil. The term Pharisee described a political party. If you wanted any voice in the community in, in first century Judea, you had to belong to one of the parties, to one of the sects or you had no political voice. Just like today, if you want a political voice, you have to belong to a party. Was Paul a lawyer? Paul wasn't a lawyer. He was a tent maker by trade. So Graeber lies about Paul's vocation. Acts 18, chapter, chapter 18, verse 3. Nowhere does it state that Paul was a lawyer. Pharisee, scribe, and lawyer were all quite different things as we see in Matthew chapter 23. So, so Graeber is using these terms to, to trigger emotions in, in Christian identities and to deceive people. Was Paul learned in the learning of the Greeks? 
Yes, he was. Is there anything wrong with that? Absolutely not. This should be a source of to students of Christian identity. Because most of the Greeks were actually dispersed Israelites. It should be a source of refutation to the Jews. The Jews would like most Christians, that the Jews would like Christians to believe that Judea was isolated from Greco-Roman culture and language and learning, which is a huge lie. I could write a two-fold paper. I've done this. I've done podcasts on this. Brian, we did a podcast together on the parallels between Greek culture and the Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. Entire books could be written on this, and, and books have been written on this topic. The parallels between the Old Testament and, and, and the ancient Greek beliefs and myths. And, of course, on the New Testament and its parallels with ancient Greek literature. Paul quotes Herodotus, he quotes Euripides, he quotes Epimenides, he quotes Menander. He uses illustrations derived from Homer and Pythagoras and others. That should be a source of pride. But Paul never quotes Socrates or Plato. I've never seen anybody point out quotations from Socrates or Plato in Paul's letters. So, so, Although even if, even if he were to quote them, that's not a mark against him. They it, were learned philosophers. Well, it's not a mark against him because they were learned men and, and because no philosopher has everything right, but no philosopher has everything wrong either. And the philosophers, the early Greek philosophers, did draw in, in, uh, on documents and, and learning which, was, which preceded them, and a lot of them drew on the Hebrew Old Testament, which was very well known throughout the ancient world. In spite of the claims made by the Jews. Would you like to read Graeber's argument in section H, or section E, I'm sorry. Section E. Graeber states, now let us consider specific Pauline doctrine that is divergent from the gospel of Jesus Christ lies. We read in Romans 3.17, For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? Now, is that actually what Romans 3.17 says? Should I pull it up and see that he's not actually well, well, false? No, he, he, he's, he's quoting it correctly, but he's reading it wrong. He's, re- right. he's reading it totally wrong. Okay, because I was worried, because at this point, I wouldn't put a false quote past this guy if he thought he could pull a fast one on a reader. I think he would, he would, he would misquote a, a verse. Well, well, the verse is probably quoted, but he's still trying to pull a fast one on a reader. All right. To continue. Here Paul is justifying lies if they serve a moral purpose. This sounds like the anti-Christian Plato's philosophy from the Republic. Well, whoa, whoa, whoa. How can Plato be an anti-Christian the definition of an antichrist is someone who denies that Jesus is Messiah, and Plato lived and died 300 years before Jesus. Right. So that, that, that's a, that's just a it's a smear. It's a red herring. To continue, this sounds like the anti-Christian Plato's philosophy from the Republic. Quote: Such a dangerous weapon as falsehood may not be employed by any but rulers, and then only for great and good purposes. Is this what Paul is saying in Romans 3.7? The gospel of Jesus Christ tells us in 1 John 2.27, but the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, 
and ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is the truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, you shall abide in him. If Paul was indeed anointed of Jesus Christ, how could he lie? Question, though, when he says the gospel of Jesus Christ, 1 John 2.27, that's not the gospel, that's an epistle of John, one of John's letters, right? That's not the gospel. Well, well that's correct. That, that's correct. And those words, even though they're true, they don't exist in, in the written gospels, right? Right. But, but that's immaterial. The, 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 the basic problem here is that Graeber can't read. I, I don't know. I, I don't know what kind of doctor he was. I, I mean, he he may have just sent off for a mail order certificate. Not well, he was a Smith doctor. Skills. It, it, you can read Romans three seven from the King James version, right? Paul says, "For if the truth of God has more abounded through my lie into His glory, un, for His glory, unto His glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner?" In my translation, it says, Indeed, if the truth of Yahweh were increased by my lie for his honor, why then am I still judged as wrongful? Paul's not promoting lying here, as Graver claims. Certainly not. Paul is saying that to lie, even if one believes that he is helping or honoring God by lying, to lie is sinful. That's what he's saying. This isn't a promotion of lying. It's not a justifying of lies. It's telling us that even if we think we should help, we could help God by lying, we shouldn't do it because it's sin. That's what Paul's saying. Mm-hmm. Well, he explains that in, in the next verse. There are men, uh, I've heard that, that um, uh, I've heard many people, even in Christian identity, think they could get away with lies for convenience. And it's sinful. And that's what Paul is saying. You can't lie about the past. You can't lie about history. You can't lie about Scripture. It's sinful. That's what Paul is saying. Don't even think you could help God by lying because lying makes you a sinner. That's what Paul is saying. He's not justifying lies. He's doing the exact opposite. Graver is lying. It's very plain. It's incredible to me that anybody could read Paul, Romans 3.17 and think that Paul is justifying lies when Paul is basically telling us that there are no, there is no justification for lies. That's what he's telling us. So, so to me, that's incredible. The definition of diabolus is, is, is a, an accuser, but more fully, and, and by inference, it's one who makes false accusations. And that describes H. Graver to me. He He's a devil. Well, Bill, you ask what kind of doctor he is. I wonder, um, could we say he's a spin doctor? Well, they underrule identity by, by they underrule the, that they, uh, I'm sorry, they undermined America by calling themselves Americans. They under, they undermined Judea by calling themselves Judah. They undermined Christian identity by calling themselves identists. And it's interesting, too, um, you were saying that in, in regards to his lies, he fails to mention Romans 3, 8 and Romans 3, 9. He just reads Romans 3, 7, where Paul's posing the question, you know, if somebody lies to do this, what, what about it? And then he goes on, Paul gives his answer in 8 and 9, where he establishes it's not proper, it's not right, it can't be done. So he makes it seem like Paul is posing a rhetorical question and articulating his view that it's okay to lie, when Paul is just 
establishing a question that he's then going to immediately answer. So this guy, this Graber clown, he, he's tremendously dishonest. He's a liar. Well, absolutely. And he's well, not lying for any good purpose. A lot of identity Christians have fallen for this garbage. Ralph Daigle. 30 years, on, and he, he was 30 years in Christian identity. And he fell for this garbage after 30 years. He's only one example. And I'm going to keep pointing him out because I hope someday he listens to this and he very well may. Would you like to read the next section? Section F. Graber states, the Messiah, we read, concerning Paul in Acts 13, 46-47, then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, meaning the Jews, his words, but seeing ye put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles, for so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. If the Apostle Paul is to be for salvation unto the ends of the earth, that means that Jesus Christ has abdicated his Messiahship. If we are to believe these scriptures in the Apostle Paul, then Paul is our Messiah. <laughs> Paul further magnifies himself in Galatians 4.14, And my temptation which was in my flesh, ye despised not, nor rejected, but receive me as an angel of God, even Jesus Christ. What arrogance. Paul putting himself on the same level with Jesus Christ. We read the words of Jesus in John 4, 25, 26. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Who do you accept as the Messiah, Jesus Christ or the Apostle Paul? Yeah, you know, before I look at my, at, at my response to this, let me say that the Judeo-Christians, Judeo-Christian pastors, right? Well, where Christ says, and, and, and this is all through all of the cross-references of, that you find in the center columns of King James Bibles, right? Where Christ says the kingdom of heaven has been taken from you and given to a nation um, producing its fruits, all these cross-references go to Acts chapter 13, verses 46 and 47. And they try to use Paul's words, and, and let me read the, the King James Version of it, right? Acts thirteen forty-six. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to a light of the nations. No, I, I want to back up just a little. Oh, I'm in, on 47. 46. Then, then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, but seeing ye put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. They try to say that this is where Paul changed Christianity. That, that it's no longer for Jews, that it's for Gentiles now, because these Jews didn't listen to Paul. Now, if that was the correct interpretation, why the hell would Paul go into a synagogue in Acts 14.1? Evidently, it's not the correct interpretation, is it? Because Paul already said he turned to the Gentiles and leave the Jews, right? 
If that was the correct interpretation, why would Paul be in a synagogue in Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17, verse 1? And in another synagogue in Acts chapter 18, verse 4? And in another synagogue in Acts chapter 19, verse 8? And in another synagogue in Acts chapter 22, verse 19? Obviously, there is a problem with the Judeo-Christian interpretation of Acts chapter 13, verses 46 and 47. And anybody with half a brain would want to look into that discrepancy. When I wrote this, this paper in 2005, I said that I had been thinking to write a paper for some time now concerning all of the mistranslation and misconception in and of the book of Acts. Now, since I wrote this, I have completed an entire and original translation of the book of Acts and the Gospel of Luke and, of course, of the rest of the New Testament, right? I really wasn't planning on that when I wrote this response, when I wrote this letter. In Acts chapter 13, verse 47, Paul quotes Isaiah. He quotes Isaiah 42, 6, 49, 6, and 51, 4. And Isaiah's prophecy is related to the promises found at 1 Kings 11.36 and 2 Chronicles 21.7. And Paul clearly understood that, knowing the prophecy better than Mr. Graber. Paul understood that he had a part in fulfilling that prophecy, which says, and I'll read 1 Kings 11.36, And unto his son will I give one tribe, that David, my servant, may have a light always before me in Jerusalem, a city which I have chosen me to put my name there, talking about the tribe of Benjamin, of which Paul was a member, being left with the tribe of Judah. Every message needs a messenger. If one claims to know where lost Israel was at the time of Christ, one must accept Paul as that messenger. No one else delivered the message of the gospel to the nations, not to the Gentiles, but Paul and the Gauls and the Greeks and the Romans and the Spaniards whom Paul mentioned and the Scythians whom Paul mentioned were all Israelites and Paul knew it. They were the Gentiles. But that's not the context here. That's not even the context here in Acts 11, chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13, verse 46, Paul gives this discourse in Pisidian Antioch. Pisidian Antioch was a Roman, it, it was a city which contained a colony of Romans. It was a Phrygian city originally. It contained a lot of Greeks and Phoenicians, people that were all dispersed Israel by race. And there were a lot of Judeans in these synagogues, and there were a lot of non-Judeans in these synagogues. I've established on many occasions that where you have people of diverse ethnic backgrounds, even though they're all the same race, they're not considered one single people by the Greeks. They're not properly a laos. 
on those occasions, and the King James Version absolute does this on certain occasions, the word ethne in the plural has to be translated as people. And this is one of those occasions. Because you have a multi-ethnic group, they cannot be termed a laos. The Greeks didn't use that word laos unless it was a single ethnic group which was being addressed, a people. They used the word ethnos in the plural, ethne. Paul is simply saying, and I'll read the Christogenian New Testament, then Paul and Barnabas speaking openly said to you it was necessary to speak the word of Yahweh first. Since you have rejected him and judge yourselves not worthy of eternal life, behold, we turn to the people, not to the Gentiles. If Paul was turning to the Gentiles in the Judeo-Christian sense of the term, he wouldn't have been found in a synagogue in Acts chapter 14, verse 1, in Acts chapter 17, verse 1, in Acts chapter 18, verse 4, in Acts chapter 19, verse 8, or in Acts chapter 22, verse 19. He wouldn't have been in those synagogues because he would have been going to Gentiles. He'd have been going to non-Jews. However, understanding the Greek use of the term ethne in these contexts and translating it correctly as people in English, although it really infers people from different nations in the same group, it makes a lot more sense that Paul is speaking to these local leaders at this local assembly hall and telling them that he had to speak the word of God to them first, and when they rejected him, he turned to the people in the synagogue, in the assembly hall, and address them directly himself. That's what's going on in Acts chapter 13. Graeber is taking a Judeo-Christian misunderstanding, and he's criticizing Paul of Tarsus for it. The words are Paul's, but they don't mean what the Judeo-Christians think they mean. And Paul cannot be condemned for those words. The Judeo-Christian interpretation of the verse is obviously wrong in the face of Paul's subsequent actions in the book of Acts. First, it should be noted that Paul's scope here is local. I'm reading what I originally wrote in 2005. This is not, as the Catholics would have you think, a sudden and general rejection by Paul of Judeans everywhere, God having changed his mind and his people. That is deception. Graeber is caught up in a Judeo-Christian deception. By no means should Acts 13.46 be cross-referenced, as so many fools do, to Matthew 21.43. Instead, Matthew 21, 43 should be cross-referenced to Micah chapter 4, verses 7 through 8, and to Daniel 2, 44, which the mainstream Christians neglect to do, not having the truth. Paul's rejection of Judeans here applies only to those Judeans at the time and place, the synagogue at Pisidian Antioch, in which Paul makes this statement, 
that's obvious because days later at Iconium, 75 miles east of Antioch, Paul visits another synagogue, Acts 14.1. And in that synagogue, a great multitude of the Judeans and also of the Greeks believed. So here it is proven that anyone who follows the Catholic universalist theology is a fool and makes a fool out of themselves trying to read the Bible. And Graeber is following that and making a fool out of himself criticizing Paul of Tarsus because the words are taken out of their historical usage, the words are taken out of their context, and, and, and they're twisted and perverted and destroyed. Paul can't be blamed for people centuries later not understanding his language. The words ta ethne in the passage at Acts 13.46. Anyone who ever reads the Greek word ethnos, of which ethne is the plural, and utters the made-up Catholic word gentile, is a moron. The secular definition of ethnos is a number of people accustomed to live together, a company or body of men. After Homer, it meant a nation or a people. In the New Testament, it means nations, the nations. That's the words of Liddell and Scott. Now, not always can the word ethnos or ethne be translated nations. In Acts 8, chapter 8, verse 9, in Romans chapter 10, verse 19, in the King James Version, it's translated as people. Compare Mark eleven seventeen to the source of the quote from Isaiah 56, 7, and you'll realize that the King James should have translated the word as people in Mark eleven seventeen, and it did not. There are many other examples of this. But we see in places in the New Testament, Acts 8, 9, and Romans 10, 19, that even the King James translators realized that there are times when the word ethnos should be translated as people because the word nation or nations does not fit the context. The King James should have rendered Acts 13.46, Lo, we turn to the people, not to the Gentiles. Left behind in the idea, because it's, it just doesn't, it, it doesn't work, it doesn't translate into English. When you translate, when you make a translation, Notes are always required because some ideas built into words in one language just don't translate into the other language. When you take the word ethne at Acts 13, 46, and you translate it as people, the idea is correctly, the idea is correctly transmitted. But what's left behind is the Greek understanding that the people being addressed are a multi-ethnic group. That's why the word laos, which is a word meaning people, was not used there, because the group 
consisted of both Greeks and Judeans. It wouldn't be considered a laos. It would be considered ethne, people of diverse ethnic ethnicities. That's what it would mean in Greek. That idea doesn't translate into English. But it's very clear to anybody that actually reads Greek. This is one example of a serious misunderstanding of the Greek language in Christianity that causes people to reach false conclusions about the mission of Paul. It's not Paul's fault that Christians don't understand Greek. I can demonstrate that my interpretation of the Greek, as I present it here, is correct. But how do you prove it to a non-Greek reader that's steeped in Judeo-Christian tradition? That's difficult to do. That's a challenge. That's just the way it is. But it's not Paul's fault. Paul of Tarsus can't be blamed for it. At Acts 13.46, he says, Lo, we turn to the people in English. That's the way it should be understood. has nothing to do with trading Gentiles for Jews. To continue by examining another part of Graeber's statements in his paragraph, he lies concerning Galatians 4.14. Talking about where Paul says, and my temptation, which was in my flesh, ye despised not nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even Jesus Christ, by that statement, as it appears in the King James, Paul, Graver accuses Paul of being arrogant. Graver says that Paul's putting himself on the same level with Christ. My own translation of Galatians 4.14 reads thus, And of my trial in the flesh you did not despise or loathe, but as a messenger of Yahweh you accepted me like Yahshua Christ. And it may be proven, and we could start that by reading Galatians 4.15, that Paul's trial of the flesh was his failed eyesight, for which we can also see Galatians chapter 6, verse 11. And then Paul was commending the Galatians here for treating him respectably, even though he had such a disability. The Greeks put a lot of stock in physical perfection. And Paul, being of poor, poor eyesight, was physically imperfect. Paul is not elevating himself to the position of Christ in Galatians 4.14. Rather, Paul is commending the Galatians for abiding by the words of Christ expressed in Matthew chapter 10, verse 40, where Christ said, He who receives you receives me. Graeber is again creating a lie. That's all I have to say. The, the Paul bashers we're going to see as this presentation unfolds week after week after week that the Paul bashers don't have a leg to stand on. They create lies out of the scripture that they buy into Judeo-Christian misinterpretations to bad Judeo-Christian translations they make corrections of those translations in the Gospels, 
and they neglect to make corrections to those translations in Paul's letters. It's not Paul Tarsus's fault that he was misunderstood. It's the fault of clowns like Jaime Graber that he's misunderstood and remains so. Do you have anything to add? Well, I think we've established the guy as a clown who hates Paul. The question becomes why? What is his agenda? What is, why does he have an axe to grind against Paul? What is it that he's hoping to achieve that Paul is an obstacle to? Well, well, you know, they blame Paul for, for the concept of universalism. But Paul can't be blamed for universalism because you could walk through all the Gospels, you could walk through every other epistle from every other apostle, and you could find um, statements that if taken out of context, you can promote universalism with them. Look at the Great Commission at the end of Matthew, which is mistranslated in the King James Version. There's a definite article which is omitted. And, and the Great Commission they use to promote universalism. Look at John 3.16, which is poorly understood by all Christians, and they use John 3.16 to promote universalism. There are statements on, in the Sermon on the Mount that they use to promote universalism. The, the, the end of Mark 16, they use to promote universalism. It's not, none of that can be blamed on Paul of Tarsus. We could get rid of Paul of Tarsus and we could still have universalism in Scripture because we still have the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. We still have the, the false words in the last 11 verses of Mark 16. We still have John 3.16. So we still have universalism. Is the New Testament universal? No. Is Paul of Tarsus a universalist? No. His epistles, translated properly, prove exactly the opposite. But they blame Paul for universalism because the Judeo-Christians use mistranslations of Paul most frequently and, and, and taken out of context, passages taken out of context, to appear to support their universalism. But that's so essentially, none of that's Paul's fault. We'll still have universalism because we have universalists, and they're going to use anything that they can twist and distort to support their universalism. Exactly. Exactly. But that's not Paul's fault. Paul of Tarsus can't be blamed on that. Paul's epistles are actually extremely exclusivist. And, and if the Paul bashers would actually study Paul's epistles, they might realize that. Maybe they don't want to realize it. Or maybe they do realize it, and they realize that it would stand in the way of their agenda to admit that. These people must have some sort of agenda. Well, well, the people that, um, when we get to the heart of, of, of this presentation, we'll see that the source of all the Paul bashing material comes from Jews and fags. Doquan Prince and John Spong are the fount of material used by Paul bashers everywhere. So Dr. Graber, he's keeping good company then. So he accuses... Paul of learning from Plato and Socrates, but he learns from Jews and queers. Absolutely. All right, then. 
Okay, thank you for joining me, and and uh, we may pick this up next week, or, or or we may do something else. Next week's program will leave to be announced. Uh, I I, I want to do this entire presentation on Paul bashing. It's probably going to take about fifteen to twenty installments, but it's got to be done. And, and um, I don't know if I want to do it consecutively. Thank All you right. for joining me, and praise Yahweh. Good night. Praise Yahweh. Thank you. There was an time, but old time was then young. The British Caledonia, the chief of her land, from some of your northern.